0: And so this had began to happen in my life. So this was the beginning of a transitional period for me. At the same time, my pastor came to me, and he told me he wanted me to go on a short-term mission trip. And about this time, I began to disciple some guys that i have been leading to Christ in this ministry. And during this period of time, as I realized, this was very time-consuming for me. So uh, I was having to weigh a lot of things out in my life, how I was going to live my life anymore. You know, it's one thing to go Saturday morning in a staged environment and, and lead people people to the Lord, which was great. I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> At the same time as I began to dedicate my life to, uh, uh, to discipling these men, I had some men that had come out of prison. They were violent offenders. And I had prayed with some of them to come to the Lord, but I noticed they weren't growing. And I realized they were so uncomfortable in a traditional church and really so unwelcome. I don't know if you've ever gone to church with a guy that had bullet holes in his neck. You know, he's sewed up all over his body, and you can tell where he's been cut with a knife. And, I mean, these guys were rough, rough. And, uh, and, so, and I, so I began discipling these guys, and, uh, and it began to take a lot of time. And at the same time, I got this book. Uh, by this, uh, you know, I was still asking my questions about the kingdom of God and somebody sent me this crazy book called The Kingdom That Turned the World Upside Down by David Bersow. And so all this stuff cart's coming together. My friends are rejecting me because I'm chasing after Jesus. I'm going to this church where these missionaries are at. I finally begin to understand the kingdom of God and uh, and I'm realizing that I can't do what God wants me to do and run all these darn businesses. There's just too much. I can't work 100 hours a week do all this stuff. And then my pastor's telling me, Glenn, I want you to go on a short-term mission trip. And I'm just like overwhelmed. And I told him, I said, that's got to be the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. I said, first of all, what do I need? I got six guys I'm discipling over here. Okay. Why in the world do I need to get on a plane, go to a place where I don't know the culture, can't speak the language. There's already guys there that know what they're doing." You know, it's going to cost me $4,000 to go round trip back then. It's like 2000 now, but it's like $4,000 to go over there and come back. And, you know, let's send this guy a grand and call it even. You know, it's a lot better use of the money and time. I'll stay over here doing what I'm good at, and he can stay over there doing what he's good at, and let's just leave me out of the equation and everything. So my pastor told me, he says, well, Glenn, I just want you to pray about it. And I said, no problem. So, you know, I, I do like most of us do. to got up and said, Lord, my pastor wants me to pray about going on a short-term mission trip. I know you don't want me to go, but, you know, I told my pastor I'd pray. So anyway, God, have a nice day. Now let's, you know, let's pray about the things that matter. You know, Lord, bless my mom and dad. And I started praying for my disciples. And I go on my thing. My pastor sees me. He says, so he says, did you pray about going on the short term mission trip? Oh, yeah, 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 I prayed. And he could tell, he's like, what do you mean you prayed? I said, I prayed, I prayed. Like two days ago, I asked God, didn't hear back from him. You know, no answer is an answer. You know, God has no opinion in the matter, evidently. And so, uh, so he says. No, I want you to pray every day. And he says, not only that, he gave me this book on how to pray for the nations. And uh, and so it had every country in the world, and you open it up and you prayed. It starts in the A's. It's alphabetical, of course. You know, Azerbaijan, Bajan, or something. You know, and it tells you about you know when the last time God moved there and whether or not it's Muslim or Catholic, whatever. And so, so I'd pray for him and turn the page and everything. I tell everybody my pastor tricked me. It's become a trend that I've been tricked. Multiple times, and every time I get tricked, I get closer to what God wants me to do, it seems. But anyway, so I told him, he said, I want you to seek God about this and pray about it. I don't mean one time and then give it up. I said, I want you to pray about it. So, you know, I'd get up every day and say, Lord, uh, my pastor, as you know, wants me to go on this short-term mission trip. I know you don't want me to go, but, you know, he told me to pray. I'm just praying, just letting you know. We all know the answer to this prayer And um, have a nice day, God. Now let's get on with the day. And I would, every day I'm doing the same thing. We're about four days in this prayer. I get up and I tell God the same thing. God, I know you don't want me to go. I know you're not interested in me going to Africa. What a waste of time that would be. Uh, Lord, I just, you know, once again, my pastor told me to pray and I try to do what my pastor tells me to do. And I go walking in the living room And all I can tell you is I heard in my heart of hearts, my brain, every sense in my body, I heard God say, I'm waiting on you in Africa. And of course, I immediately switched to full-on theological mode. Of course, God, you're omnipotent. You're everywhere while you're waiting on me in the next room, the bathroom, the kitchen, the bedroom, America, South America, and everywhere, God, we know that you're everywhere. Of course, you're waiting for me everywhere. You know, God, he doesn't really care about that theology stuff, by the way. He's more all, God's all about that obedience stuff. You know, I heard a guy say, theology is a study of God. It says not a verse in the Bible says study God. It always says, obey me. Israel never got in trouble because they studied God. They got in trouble because they disobeyed God. So anyway, my pastor asked me, he said, what are we going to do about the short-term mission trip? Has God said anything? And I was like, Yes. What did he say? He's waiting on me in Africa. All right, you're in. And so here we go. Well, I got ready to go on this trip in Africa, and when I got ready to go, uh, it was different for me. I went on a trip with about 17 different people that were all going into missions but me and two guys. Every one of them were in college, seminary. In some kind of phase, I don't care if it was med school to be a doctor as a missionary or it was gonna be a preacher as a missionary, they were all gung-ho to go. And I was going along, and the man that was taking me was a guy, that's what he did, was take people on short-term mission trips. His name's Wade Aitkins. I owe him a lot. He's a great guy. He's about 74 years old and still takes people on short-term mission trips. So anyway, so everybody's all excited. They've been on multiple mission trips. Man, my idea of going out of the country was going down to Guadalajara or going to Jamaica. Anywhere there was a beach and margaritas, that's my idea of what you did on vacation. So when you left the country, there was always beaches and margaritas involved or I wasn't going. I mean, I might go to the mountains in America. But if you're going to ask me to leave the country, there's got to be beaches and margaritas involved or Glenn's not a prospect. OK, that's just the way it was. And so anyway, so this is a new experience for me. And so I remember they landed the plane and everybody grabbed their luggage. And of course, they're all younger than me. I was about 55 at the time, 52. And they all go running off. Yeah, hey, we're never going to go tell everybody about Jesus. And I grabbed my bag and I walked over. Of course, this is in Africa. So the plane was playing out in the middle of the tarmac. You know, we just had the stairs. It went down to this little uh, tarmac uh, landing strip there. And I'm standing there with my suitcase, and everybody's running off to go to customs, and I'm looking down at the bottom of the staircase because God's waiting on me down there. And I know it. And I'm like, I start down the staircase, and I go down, and I literally stepped on the tarmac, and I felt the power of God come over me. I felt the Holy Spirit come over me, and I went, oh, my goodness, what's going on? I didn't have to worry about that warm wuzzy feeling because I got robbed before I got to the terminal. Welcome to Africa. It's no big deal. After a while, these things just wash over you, man. It's no big deal. But anyway, so uh, we got that resolved. That guy got thrown in jail. It's, it's, it's It's a weird story. And so I go about my life, but I, my whole experience while I'm in Africa, it was like I was on a different planet from all the other missionaries. You know, they'd all been there, done that, and all this kind of stuff. And I, I ran into one instance where I, uh, everybody was passing out these little tracks. We, we had eyeglasses we were giving to people. So we had optometrists with us. We had kind of a, a, a nice pool of, uh, a lot of you may not know this, but all of us, about 90% of the world wears you know 90 percent the same prescriptions okay and then there's a few of us that are weird like me that need really strong stuff and so what we did was is we had those most typical prescriptions with us and so we could actually Give people glasses, even though we didn't make them when we were on this trip. So we were doing that, and they were passing out flyers. And, of course, Africans never get a shot at getting glasses. So everybody's rushing to come to our crusade every night, and we would uh, preach about Jesus. But also you could come in the afternoon, and we would share our faith. And while you waited, kind of like the grocery ministry, while you waited to see the optometrist to get you a pair of glasses. And so I got to share with all kinds of people. I, I'd never shared with the Muslim. I'd never met a Muslim in my life, and I was leading Muslims to Christ. It was a very exciting time. But I remember I, uh, everybody was going to pass out these flyers, and they wanted to get rid of their flyers real quick. So they would run to the marketplace and give everybody a flyer. And, of course, that was the most efficient thing to do. But I'd done some weird things before I went since God said he was going to be there. And so I'd actually learned some Swahili. So I've always thought it was important to be able to ask in someone's native tongue where the bathroom is. First of all, I, I found that to be a very crucial thing. Clean water. I thought it might be a good idea in Africa to find out if they had Magi, because you don't want just any Magi, you don't want any water, but you want drinking water, Kuniwa. and so anyway, I learned some just basic things, and I picked up a few other things, and so I, instead of going down the beaten path, I went down this trail where it was a dirt trail and I noticed there was houses that looked like they were made of mud. And so as I went down this road, the first house on the left was at a corner and there were about six old ladies and they were all naked. And they all looked like they were 70 or 80 years old, and they're all standing there. And there was a lady with a wash tub, and she was sitting there, and she was just pumping her fists in that wash tub. And, of course, you know, being a a nice Westerner, you know, you'd never look at anybody naked. So, you know, I'm just kind of, uh-oh, I'm not going over there. And so, you know, I shield my eyes, and I go give the brochures on the other side of the street. And as I'm going, I keep looking back going, what in the world are those old ladies doing standing on the street corner naked? Watching that lady splash around in, the, in this tub. And I, and I was going down the whole area. It was really poor. It was very destitute. And as I came back up, I, w- I kept watching as I was passing these flowers out and using my little bit of Swahili, saying, Karibu, Karibu Kuja, you know, welcome come to this event I'm giving you something to. <clears throat> and I watched, and, and, and that lady, every now and then, she'd pull out some clothes out of that tub and she would ring them as best she could, and she would hand it to one of those ladies. And they would put the clothes on, wet, and they would turn around, and they'd start walking away. And as I'd watch, every now and then she'd do that, and they'd walk away. And so eventually I ran across somebody that spoke English, and they said, oh, yeah. She said, all, all those old ladies, they only have one pair of clothes. So they go over there once a week, and that young lady volunteers to wash them for her. And they have nothing to wear while they wait. So they just stand there and wait on her to get through. And then she gives them their clothes back and they went. So I followed one of those ladies home. And when I followed her her house, she lived in a mud house. It was made out of mud stick and manure with a thatch roof. It had no windows, no doors. And she had a little piece of cloth over it. And as she walked in and opened it up, I realized she had no furniture. She was sleeping on the floor. And, uh, And I realized this was part of, this was her reality. This was her life. And so I made a point, instead of being in the marketplace and doing all the things everyone else did, I made a point to stay off the beaten path. That's all I did. Everybody else went to the hotel room where we had a big wall around this fancy hotel with a concertina wire at the top and a guy at the front gate with an AK-47. And when everybody would go eat, I would go to the back because it was kind of the slums back there, and I could kind of mess around a little bit with Swahili. I'm sure it was so bad that nobody they thought, who is this insane guy trying to speak Swahili? But I stayed back there and hung out with them and got involved. And so anyway, by the end of the trip or, or getting near the end of the trip, my pastor says, man, it's like, you're on a whole different mission than the rest of us, wrong? And I says, I know, man, this is, place is amazing. So finally he kept telling this Wade Aikens guy, I want this guy to preach, let him preach, let him preach. And Wade Aikens, he ran this thing. and says, look, we got guys that are in missionary school, guys that are going to be pastors, guys that want to be evangelists and want to dedicate themselves to that. He said, the only reason we want guys like him to come is because they got money and we want them to give. So we bring them over here and show them how the rest of the life, the world lives. And then they become good contributors from now on because you can't see what you see over there and not be changed. See, the only reason it doesn't affect you is because you ain't gone over there and seen it. Once you go over there and see it, you'll never be the same. People say, I want to come to Africa and help. And I always laugh and say, you don't need to come to Africa and help. You need to come to Africa and get helped. You need to come and see what's going on. I'm not interested in what you can do if you come to Africa. I'm excited about what Africa can do to you and what God and the Holy Spirit will do in your life if you'll come with an open mind and an open heart to what God would have you to do. Tanzania I'm gonna say 210 210 uh nah 215 I'm sorry I get I, I'm I'm so I, I get off I forget it's 2021 fixing to be 2022 I've only been over there a little over 10 years and I started going only 12 years ago so I'd have to do the math don't believe me <laughs> it takes too much thinking for me to get the years right But so anyway, so I'm I'm over there, and and, and Wade kept saying, I'm not going to let that guy preach. Just let this guy see what he sees and does what he does. I'm going to let all these young ministerial students preach. And so I was there, and Jeff just stayed after him and stayed after him. So finally, the crowds had gone down from 15,000, 20,000 people a night. The crowds had dropped down to about 800 or 1,000 the last night or two. And they said, okay, he can preach tonight. He can't do any damage. He can't hurt anything. It won't be 800 people there tonight. So I got there, and he told me I had four minutes. How many of you ever preached to a translator? I know you have. Four minutes means you got two. Because I'm going to say, you must be born again. And then this guy's going to say, Lazima or something like that. So anyway, he's going to say something in Swahili for every time you say something in English. So, Eight minutes is four. Four minutes is two. You get the idea. So I got it real quick. Read, had the guy read the prodigal son, say, I'm that guy. Don't be him. And come to God because he'll accept you. I mean, let's face it. That's about all you got. I mean, you got four four, in two minutes. And then I gave the altar call. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people came down front. It was ridiculous. Not only did they come down front, but... They, they took, them, took a bunch of them over to pray, and then the weirdest thing happened was is that uh, all these widows lined up, and this is going to be significant to you in a minute. All these widows lined up in Tanzania, and they came up to me, and they had coins in their hand. And they took my hand, and they opened it up, and they put money in my hand and closed my fist. And I'm like, what in the world? And they kept giving me money, and I, one hand, and then I had to have two hands. I'm putting it in my pocket. I turned around to my translator, and I said, what's going on here? And he's standing here like this. I said, well, what are they doing? He said, I have no idea. <laughs> and I said, well, what does this mean? And he said, I've never seen this before in my life. He said, African Tanzanians do not look for white people to give money to. And these are widows. They have nothing. He said, best I can tell, they're giving you every single thing they have, and I have no explanation for what's happening. I have never seen this in my life. And so, you know, I just took it and went and put it in the little offering box. You know, I didn't know what to do with it. I saved me a souvenir. And so anyway, then the next thing I know, they rushed us over to the bus and told us to get on the bus and everybody sit there an hour. Every night we'd been there before, we'd all go to the bus, get on the bus and go back to heart, the hotel room. This time we go to the bus and we sit there and there's no leaders, there's no pastor, there's no anybody. We're in the middle of Africa and thousands of people have surrounded the bus wondering what are all these white people doing sitting here? And we're all sitting there going, what are we doing sitting here? And why is everybody looking at us like we're in a zoo? Because we, we're kind of like the animals over there. You're like, look at that white guy, he's funny looking. I wonder why he dresses like that. <laughs> I wonder what they eat. Man, they smell funny. You know, we're like we're in a zoo sitting there. After a while, I'll, everybody comes, the leaders get on the bus. And I said, let's go, let's go. And we run out of there like the place is on fire. And I go, what in the world is going on? He says, man, after you got through preaching, all these people come down that wanted to make a decision for Christ. He says, we took them around the side and they're all demon possessed. I said, what? He said, We had to get all you uh, Westerners out of here because these guys, all these men and women that we brought over here, over half of them had demons. And we didn't, we don't know how Westerners are going to react to all this. So we run and hid you guys on the bus so we could deal with all these demons. And he said, we've been over there delivering people for about 45 minutes or an hour the whole time. I said, what in the world is going on? And they said, I don't know. Something's going on. So I got, went out jogging the next day with my pastor who was on this trip with me. And he told me, he says, what are you going to do about this trip? And I said, man, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. He said, I don't know what's going on. He says, nobody knows what's going on with you on this trip. So I came back and uh, my pastor told me just to pray about it. And so I, I did the same thing. I said, now what do I do, God? God what do I do now that I've seen this? What am I going to do now? And God said the most profound thing is God said, I'm waiting for you in Africa. And you know, the first time I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to go to Africa. And this time I literally went, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because after going and after seeing and after doing and after being there and participating in what I preached in, I don't know what I would have done if he hadn't let me go back. I don't know what I'd have done to try to live here anymore after what God had done for me when I was over there. And so I got ready to go, and before I could even get ready to go, I began to uh, tell everybody that I had to, uh, that I was going to go. One thing I left out of my story is right before I went to Africa, I had uh, I had made a decision that I could no longer work a hundred hours a week and seek mammon and be a disciple maker. It was just totally incompatible. So I had let even before I decided to be in missions, I had let my partners and my brother know that I'm getting out of this rat race. I didn't know what that meant. They didn't know what that meant. They just, I go, okay, okay. And I had an epiphany moment I uh, was at that ministry, impact ministry. I'd prayed with a 70-year-old lady to receive the Lord. I came outside after the ministry was over. Everybody was gone, and she was sitting on the curb. We gave people groceries. It was a week before Thanksgiving. She had about seven bags of groceries, including frozen foods and frozen turkeys. And She's sitting out in the hot sun. It could be hot in Memphis in November. And I said, uh, Juanita, I said, what are you doing? And she said, my ride went off and left me. And I said, Well, how are you going to get home? She said, I have no idea. Nobody will answer the phone because they know I got seven bags of groceries. They got their groceries. They don't want to come back and get me. And I said, Man, I said, You know, you and I stayed in there praying and praising the Lord so long, everybody forgot about us and they left us. And she said, I know. And I said, Juanita, well, don't you worry about it. You're my sister in Christ. And I said, I'm going to take you home. She said, Well, I appreciate that. And I went and got my car, and there's a big problem. See, <clears throat> My life up to this point was totally geared towards Glenn and the American dream. I mean, I had the super nice, I had two super nice apartments downtown. I had the cabin cruiser on the lake. I had all the toys and all the things that, you know, people want and have that, you know, there's all kinds of ways you can have your toys, you know. Out in the country, you know, we love our hunting rifles, four-wheel drives, and our fancy pickup trucks. In the city, we're a little bit different than that, you know. Uh, And so anyway, I went to go get Juanita, and I I drove up to go get her, and there was only one problem is Juanita had these big seven bags of groceries. But my dream, my particular version of the American dream involved the mid-engine Porsche. And so I get up there and open the, open the trunk on this Porsche. And I'm telling you, this thing here is way bigger than the trunk on my Porsche. So we had to just pour the, pour the cans in there and fold up the sack and put it in there and we shut the back. And then we went around the front and on a mid-engine Porsche, when you open it up, it is designed to hold a small bag of golf clubs and then the spare's there, and that's it. I'm talking about the little nine-hole version of golf club. So we were able to put two bags of groceries there, and we shut the lid, and then we go back to the car, and we hit the button, and the roof for tracks back, and Juanita gets on her side, and I put about three or four bags in her lap, and then I go around and get on my side of the car, and I got two bags in my grocery store, and we're fixing to go to the hood. And I couldn't help it. I started the car up, you know, and it's nothing sounds like a Porsche. I read the engine. I turned around to Juanita and I said, Porsche, there is no substitute. Man, is this a bad grocery getter. (laughs) And she said, it is. This is a terrible car for hauling things. I said, I know, I know. And so we drove to the hood, and we drove to her house, and I took her groceries in. We sat on the front porch and drank some tea. And I got through, and I got in my car, and I drove up to the stop sign, And I stopped that car and I began to weep. That car was so emblematic of everything wrong with my life. Everything in my life was geared to the American dream and the set of values that I had had leading up to the last six months or a year. But then all of a sudden, I decided it was more important to make disciples than making money. I had decided it was more important that I'd be able to take widows home with their groceries and drive around and look cool in a sports car with the roof down. I decided that this car no longer represented the values that I had. And right then, as I began to cry in the car, I said, cry sitting there at that stop sign. I said to myself, this is the stupidest car in the whole world. As a matter of fact, I'm living my life in the stupidest way for a Christian to live their life. This is absolutely insane. So I went home, and guys, I came to the realization that I couldn't make disciples and be the guy I was before. It was physically impossible. It was mentally impossible. Everything about it was impossible. So what I had to do was blow my life up, and then rebuild it. I had to deconstruct Glenn so I could uh, deconstruct Glenn seeking the American dream, so I could reconstruct Glenn in the Kingdom dream. Okay. I traded in one dream. I traded in one set of values. I traded in one set of goals and I traded them in for another. And so basically I went back and I sold the Porsche. I bought the biggest Lincoln Continental. Do you know how many grocery bags you can put in the trunk of a Lincoln Continental? There's a reason the mob buys them. You know, they call them six body cars. You know, and I'm going to tell you, the trunk is so big, you can put 30 or 40 bags of groceries. That is not an exaggeration. And I could put about five widows in the back and four in the front with me, and the police wouldn't even slow down and talk to me. And I could go pick up my disciples and take them all anywhere I wanted. you know I used to go in that stupid Porsche, and I'd go over here, and I'd get this guy, and I'd bring him to the Bible study. And then I'd get my car and go get that guy and bring him to the Bible study. I'd have to make six, eight trips to bring them, and then I had to do it all over again because, you know, they're all tough guys, and they were not sitting in each other's lap in that other seat in that poor, I'm a, I'm a getting in there. I said, come on, man. If you'll just get in, it'll save me. One trip instead of two. I'm not sitting in that guy's lap. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, nobody would sit in anybody's lap, of course. So anyway, uh, I tried. But anyway, so, so, you know, so I came to the realization that I just couldn't live this way. And I went even a step further, and I decided that to reevaluate one, one particular Bible verse that I thought was so, so true about me. And in this Bible verse, Jesus said that you can't serve God and Mammon; and you'll hate one, and you'll love the other. And I said, now, God, I don't know about this Bible verse. I said, because I know how to make money. And there's no doubt I'm chasing money. But I said, I don't hate you. I also know I love God. And I've loved God with all my heart before too. And I didn't hate money. So I don't understand this love-hate thing you got in the Word. And so I'm just kind of praying and talking to God about this and everything. And then one morning I woke up and I just knew the answer. You see, I worked 100 hours a week in my pursuit of money. And even though I was going on Saturday mornings to lead people to Christ, I was spending about 15 hours a week serving the Lord, and I came to the realization I was loving money with my time, and I was hating God with my time. All my resources, all my energy, everything was focused around my pursuit of the American dream, and God was like the bumper sticker on the back of your car. You know, the car is where all the money's at. The bumper sticker cost about $2, and that's kind of the difference in the bumper sticker in the car. And that was what my relationship with God was like. So I literally blew everything up and I started all over again. And where I wound up was in Africa,